You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, MD, Jawbreaker, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Legends, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. The etymology and history of the word America is actually pretty interesting. You know, relatively speaking, as far as etymology and history of national names goes, it's up there. Now, we all learned in grade school, or should have, that the name derives from the Italian explorer Amergo Vespucci. Shortly after his lifetime, the word America came into use in the 1500s. And it was used in reference to... Well, that's the interesting part. What did America mean at the time? Even asking what America means today is kind of complex, and not on some philosophical level. Commonly, it refers to the United States of America. I am an American. I drive an American car, I drink American whiskey, and I speak American English. Much more broadly, of course, it refers to everything in the Western Hemisphere, the Americas. Now, this dichotomy is just kind of accepted by everyone in the modern world. You know, when a German talks about Americans, they're not talking about a Panamanian, even though Panama is part of the Americas. It's in Central America. Now, I know I'm not blowing your mind here. We all get it. But at the time with which we are concerned, that was actually kind of a hot question. See, Amerigo Vespucci, like Christopher Columbus and a number of other people we're going to talk about today, he was an Italian who sailed for an Iberian power. Vespucci sailed for both Portugal and Castile. So the word America comes down to we English speakers mostly through Spanish, although through Portuguese and Italian and even a bit of French. It's a a thoroughly Latin, romantic, even a Catholic word. But then the Reformation happened, and all of the Protestants, especially those in England, shunned anything that smacked of even a mild bit of popery, including words. They couldn't just get rid of all the French that was already embedded in English, but they sure could shun new words. America sounds like some papist plot to me. It's all very... McCarthyist, Red Scare kind of stuff. The point is, though, the early English colonists didn't use the word America, that old Catholic gem. 
even when they should have, even when it was perfect for their needs. For example, at first they called their colonies across the ocean Virginia. Uniformly, that was the name for all of the colonies on the other side of the ocean. And that worked fine when it was just Virginia. But then we started getting new colonies. You had the Virginian colonies of Virginia and Maryland. And then it gets more complicated when you have Delaware and Rhode Island and Carolina and Massachusetts. So they tried other names. They tried calling all of their colonies uniformly New England. There was actually a pretty big official push to call them the New England colonies, which stuck for the colonies that were growing at that time, but never came to encapsulate uniformly all of the American colonies. By the time of the Restoration, they'd pretty much lost that little war of words, and they called all of them simply, finally, America. But we're not there quite yet. We've been pretty laser-focused on the piratical events in Chesapeake Bay for a few weeks now, but today I want to pull back and look at the greater colonization efforts of the English, yes, but also the French, and the Dutch, and even the Spanish. And by the end, I hope to have a clear picture of what the colonies in North America looked like by about 1660. This is episode 158, North American Colonization. It would be inappropriate to begin any discussion of North American colonization in any place other than with the native peoples living there at the time. I want to talk about how I'll be referencing those different native peoples. We'll be covering a lot of ground over the next couple of weeks, so to avoid any confusion and to avoid the inevitable, embarrassing mispronunciations, I'm going to try to shy away from using the tribal names of the people in question. Instead, I'm going to use their greater cultural and linguistic distinctions, focusing basically on three. There's the Mississippian peoples to the south, along the Mississippi River and the Delta, and all the way over to Georgia and Florida. And then there are the Iroquoian peoples. We've met them before. The Susquehannock people, for example, were Iroquoian. And we'll meet them again up to the north in peoples like the Huron and the Mohawk. And then, even later on, further inland with the Cherokee. The largest group, by far, living in America at the time were the Algonquin peoples. We've already met the Algonquin and peoples like the Powhatan, but we're about to meet a lot more of them. To the north, there were the Cree, who surrounded Hudson Bay and much of the northern Great Lakes. In the Massachusetts Bay region, we'll meet the Massachusetts people and the Narragansett people. The Algonquin peoples are everywhere in this story. The indigenous peoples of pre-Columbian America were sprawling and varied, and I'm going to be boiling it down into these very broad groups, which I shouldn't do, but I'm going to do anyway, to make things easier for all of us. Now, the first Europeans to make contact were, well, I guess there were the Vikings and Leif Erikson, but the first pertinent to our story are the Spanish. From Central America, they marched northward through the Aztec Empire and into what we would today consider parts of the United States, California, New Mexico, Texas, Arizona. Eventually, the conquistador Hernando de Soto led the first European expedition across the Mississippi. Now, we've talked about that before. That's old news. So we're going to begin instead with the Newfoundland colony. Initially, that was a Norse colony, a Viking colony. 
probably that's where the colony called Vinland was located. But by 1500, that colony was abandoned. The next European contact to that region came in 1497. It was an English expedition under another Italian explorer named Giovanni Caboto. He's commonly called John Cabot. That was the first serious attempt to find a northwest passage to Asia, but there's about to be a whole lot more of those. There were Spanish and Portuguese and more Nordic sailors, and finally, the French. In 1524, yet another Italian explorer, that's the fourth so far, named Giovanni de Verrazzano, explored Newfoundland and the St. Lawrence River. Now, he was doing so under a French flag, and was followed a few years later by a man named Jacques Cartier, who finally planted a flag on Newfoundland. Four years later, in 1538, an Englishman named Humphrey Gilbert did the same thing for England. He established a fort there as well, which led to the militarization of the region, and really something of an unofficial war a three-way war between France, England, and Spain over Newfoundland. Now, this was a hotbed of privateering, even piracy, but it lacks the flair of West Indian piracy. Instead of, you know, rum and gold and Spanish galleons, it was a war of codfish and codfish and codfishing ships. It's important to the war effort, yeah, but it's not exactly fun. It doesn't make for great storytelling. The Spanish, though, would eventually abandon the colony, and the French and English would split it up into northern and southern regions. They decided it was more useful as a base for further North American exploration. If we return to Giovanni de Verrazzano, back on his 1524 expedition, after he explored Newfoundland, he moved on to found what would become known as Quebec City. That colony, that settlement, had a bunch of false starts. They faced all of the usual problems. There was starvation and supply missions getting blown off course and attacks from the Algonquin Cree people. However, the French persisted and eventually established the colonies of Acadia and New France. Now that's what all of the official records, the lines drawn on paper back in France call their colonies, but the actual hard-scrabble colonists that did the real work of scratching out settlements in Montreal and Quebec and Fort Frontenac and Fort Detroit, they had another name for the region. The French boucaniers on Saint-Domingue, down in the Caribbean, called their island, after the local Taino name, Haiti. The French fur traders up in North America borrowed the Huron, Iroquois word for their region. They called it Kanata which would, after being gallicized, of course, become Canada. Now, we're going to hold off on the exploration of the Louisiana Territory. That will become much more relevant during the Nine Years' War when we return to La Rue de Graff and Andu Lavu in that story. But if we move south, the French attempted to colonize what they call French Florida. Their first attempt was Charles Fort in 1562, which, notably, was the same year that the French Wars of Religion exploded in a series of bloody massacres against the Huguenots. Now, Charles Fort was named after King Charles IX of France, and the colony they attempted to establish was named Caroline, 
after the Latin word for Charles, as well as a nod to the Carolingian roots of their empire. But that first attempt at colonization ended tragically, much like Roanoke would a generation later. The Huguenot commander of the voyage, a man named Jean Ribault, sailed back to France to collect supplies, but as the French wars of religion had just broken out and were currently drowning Europe in blood, he was arrested and detained and unable to return with the necessary supplies. So the 28 colonists who survived that first winter sailed back for Europe. It was a difficult voyage, though, in an open boat, and they resorted to cannibalism before finally blessedly being rescued by an English Protestant. The French did try again, though, a few years later at Fort Caroline. This was the Huguenot sister city to Roanoke. It was the same colony that was sacked and burned by the Spanish from St. Augustine. Francis Drake did burn St. Augustine to the ground and get a bit of retribution for his Protestant brothers, but Spain managed to reassert her borders, for the time being at least. The English made an attempt on the region in 1629. King Charles I granted a charter to the province of Carolina. They were to establish a settlement at Cape Fear. Starvation, Native American attacks, and finally an invasion by the Spanish. It wouldn't be until after the Restoration, in the mid-1660s, that Charles II finally reincorporated the Carolina colony. And finally, that... That stuck. I do find it funny that the very first colony was named after the French King Charles. The second attempt was named after another king, an English king named Charles. And the third attempt at a Carolina colony that finally established a lasting settlement was named after a third King Charles. It allowed them at least to keep a continuity in the nomenclature. But as the Carolina colony really only got going after the Restoration, we won't have much more to say about it today. But Carolina will be one of the most central pivot points in our entire story moving forward. Only three or four places in North America, at least, really challenge Carolina for that honor. All of them, eventually, English colonies. And that brings us to the Pilgrims. Which reminds me how embarrassingly terrible I am at sticking to any kind of schedule. Many months ago, I had an outline in which I planned to discuss the story of North American colonization and the pilgrims on Thanksgiving. We are now four months past Thanksgiving, give or take a few weeks, and I'm finally getting to where I plan to be. The Pilgrims are really one of the seminal pieces of the American mythology, and for some very good reasons. Now, they were Puritans, but we should draw some distinctions here. I've often talked about the Puritans as if they're a single, unified, religious sect, but they're not. The very word Puritan was a pejorative. It was used to mock the Puritans. There were a ton of separate congregations, though, with different beliefs, and sometimes those beliefs would stand in opposition to other Puritan sects. Some of them were downright radical, even to a sort of Christian proto-communism, like the Diggers, for example. You know the anarcho-syndicalists in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, 
Strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Well, in that scene, they're digging in the mud. And while the language that they used is very 19th century Marxist kind of stuff, the whole scene is a reference and, you know, a dig against the diggers. Well, the pilgrims, the congregation in England that would become to be known as the pilgrims, they weren't that radical. They weren't the diggers, they weren't the anarcho-syndicalists, but they were still pretty radical. They practiced democracy within their congregation, universal male suffrage at least, and they had some pretty insane ideas for society at large. Separation of church and state, freedom of religion, things like that. You can see how they came to be so central to the American myth. The slave-owning Chesapeake, colonies may have been the economic engine of the English colonies, but that's not a system that you want kids to idealize when they're taught about it in school. The pilgrims fill in nicely in that role. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Now, they were chased out of England by royal forces, and they fled initially to Holland. See, these pilgrims were also Calvinist, like the people in Holland, and they thought they might find a home there. But the Dutch weren't much more enamored with the radical politics of the pilgrims. So the congregation chose, in fact, they voted, to sail to the New World to establish a colony. They had a few wealthy and influential backers in England, Men who both believed in the ideals of the pilgrims, but also saw the potential financial returns. Those investors and the pilgrims outfitted two ships, the Mayflower and the Speedwell. One ship, the Mayflower, was to carry mostly the pilgrims. The other, the Speedwell, was to carry men who would ensure that those economic returns actually came to fruition. Merchants, planters, fur traders, and that sort. The Speedwell, though, never made it out of English waters. 
She had some pretty serious issues even before setting sail, but everybody packed on board the Mayflower with all of their supplies, and in late 1620, they set sail. Now, they were actually aimed at Virginia, but a pretty terrible storm blew them off course. During that storm, a woman gave birth to a child that she named Oceanus. Loyal listeners will remember Oceanus as the name of the ancient Roman god, one of the titans, in fact, that ruled the great world sea. The pilgrims found themselves finally at Cape Cod. Cape Cod is one of those locations that might give the Carolinas a run for its money, in terms of importance to piracy. The pilgrims, having made landfall, stopped and rested on shore. Most of them took the opportunity to bathe. But then they moved on. The odyssey that the pilgrims endured in reaching Plymouth Rock and finally the Plymouth Colony well, it's quite a story, an epic story even, but we're not going to be spending time on it here. However, that story is the American myth. I would make note of the Mayflower Compact. It was the governing document that these proto-democrats wrote for their colony. You know, the Constitution or the rights of man, it's not. But it's still a pretty bold declaration of self-governance nonetheless. And in a few ways reminds me of later pirate codes. But instead of all of that, we're going to continue on with the journey of colonization, and we're going to stick pretty close to that region. We should make note of an explorer named Henry Hudson, who sailed the Hudson Bay and the Atlantic seaboard, including the Hudson River. Thus far, he has explored nearly every region that we've talked about today. Now, he sailed primarily for England, but not exclusively. On one of his voyages, he sailed for the Dutch West India Company. That's the voyage in which he landed at Manhattan Island and explored the Hudson River. That voyage also led to the 1621 Dutch West India Company Foundation of New Netherland. The two largest settlements that the Dutch set up there in New Netherland were Fort Orange, which would go on to become Albany, New York, and New Amsterdam, which would of course go on to become New York City. There was also, here in the mid-1620s, a small colonial outpost up in what would one day become the colony of Maine. But within the decade, all of those colonies, especially New Netherland and the Plymouth Colony, found that the region was growing very... crowded. There was a new colony in the Northeast, a really a massive colony both in territory and in population. We're, of course, talking about the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The founders and the investors of the Massachusetts Bay Colony were also Puritans, but not the kind of cool, democratic separation of church and state pilgrims. No, they were theocratic, dogmatic, top-down sorts of Puritans, the kind that banned Christmas and were just about to go to war against the king back in England. Quite literally, in fact, they were the witch-burning kind of Puritan. Salem was their second major settlement after Boston. These Massachusetts Bay Puritans certainly weren't the freedom of religion kind of Puritans. They were more the financially and socially ostracized the Anglicans and Quakers in our colony kind of Puritans. The actively persecute any Catholics or Jews that manage to foolishly stumble into our lands kind of Puritans. Now, Massachusetts grew 
Amazingly quickly, 20,000-some-odd people sailed to America, primarily to Massachusetts, in an event called the Great Migration. In his excellent work of history, American Colonies, author Alan Taylor describes these colonists and the land into which they emigrated. And I should note he also quotes a couple of other passages in here. He writes, quote, This different set of colonists adapted to a colder, less abundant, but far healthier environment. A northern and hilly land of dense forests, sharp slopes, stony soils, and a short growing season. New England demanded hard labor to make a farm and offered little prospect of getting rich. A critic insisted that in New England, quote, the air of the country is sharp, the rocks many, the trees innumerable, the grass little, the winter cold, the summer hot, the gnats in the summer biting, the wolves at midnight howling. End quote. And then Taylor continues, quote, but in classic Puritan fashion, the New English thanked their God for leading them to a land where they had hard work. One explained, quote, If we desire to have a people degenerate speedily and to corrupt their minds and bodies, let them seek a rich soil, that which brings much with little labor. But if they desire that piety and godliness should prosper, let them choose a country such as New England, which may yield sufficiency with hard labor and industry. End quote. And then Taylor concludes, quote, Immigrants who preferred a chance to get rich could head farther south, to the Chesapeake. End quote. What Taylor's dancing around here is the, well, one half of the sociological concept called the Protestant work ethic. Now, that theory was proposed by the turn-of-the-century philosopher Max Weber. It's also been called, more accurately, even the Calvinist or the Puritan work ethic, and it argues that the values that are espoused by the Puritans of hard work and asceticism and frugality, in fact, Weber actually mentions Ben Franklin's maxim, a penny saved is a penny earned, but it argues that basically all of the ideals we just mentioned about the Puritans in New England led directly to the establishment of capitalism and American democracy. Now, there's certainly something to that. But I think, in the interest of fairness, we should point to the flip side of that theory, the other half of the Protestant work ethic, the negative argument. Now, that argument is based largely in the works of another founding sociologist, Karl Marx, but I think it's better described in the words of Martin Luther King Jr. He said, quote, we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifice. The fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, here and abroad. End quote. That dichotomy is perfectly exemplified in what Taylor was saying. I've made a couple of allusions to it myself. You know, you've got the hard-scrabble Puritans living up north, while those who wanted to grow wealthy on rich soil did so down south, primarily at this point in the Chesapeake. And while I think that Weber's theory is valid if incomplete, I'd say the same thing about what 
Martin Luther King had to say. They're both accurate, but I don't think either tells a complete story. You know, America is a land of contradictions. I think that both the hard-scrabble Puritan work ethic of the North and the more opulent exploitation of the South are necessary to produce the American system. But I think, and admittedly I may be biased in this, but I think that there's a third, often overlooked or overshadowed, viewpoint here. An ideal that I think is exemplified by pirates. Pirates represent, in some ways, the working class, the often lionized working class, maybe even the first American working class. They weren't slaves and they weren't peasants, but they certainly weren't the opulent minor nobility down south that owned huge tracts of land. They weren't even really middle class, which might be a better modern analogy for the Puritans. No, working class. Like the Puritans, they weren't afraid of a hard day's work, and they knew how to endure and move beyond suffering. But unlike the Puritans, they didn't find any intrinsic value in either of those things. On the other hand, much like the Chesapeake colonists, pirates loved a bit of gold and also were more than happy to profit off the labor of others. The difference being that instead of an exploitation of human labor, no, they just stole that wealth. But then there's something else, something that I think makes them definitively working class, something that we in our modern society seem to have lost. Pirates were angry. And you know, they're often portrayed drinking rum and singing songs, and they were, and they did. But when they sang A Pirate's Life for Me, they weren't glorying in the freewheeling fun of it all. They were talking about taking back a little bit of what had been taken from them. The pirates were angry at the wealth of the ruling class that had been earned on the backs of the dispossessed, many of which were the pirates. They were angry that the only other option shown to them by those in power was some sort of austere puritanism. On the one hand, a system that wanted to strip them of their rights and abuse them. On the other, a system that asked them to abuse themselves. This made them angry. They didn't want either of the options that were shown to them by those in power because neither option was good for them. Instead, they wanted a third way. They chose a path of rage and revolution and, notably, democracy. One man or woman, one vote. And equality under the law, laws that they got to write. The pirate tradition, I would argue, is just as important to the foundation of the American way of life as that of the Puritan work ethic, or whatever they were doing in the Chesapeake. And, wow, I'm way out in the weeds here, I'm also realizing that my goal of reaching 1660 in any reasonable amount of time is impossible. We've barely scratched the 1630s, however, this is a reasonable place to stop. Next time, we're going to pick up where we left off in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. We're going to watch as it balloons in size and then fractures into a number of different shapes that we would recognize today and we're going to do so through the eyes of the first wave of New England pirates. 
I'd like to thank everybody for listening, and everybody who has helped to support the show, either by signing up to become a patron on Patreon, or leaving us a rating or a review, or just recommending this show. You all make this show possible. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can find them at brillig.com.au. After you're done over there, you can always find us at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. You may have noticed over the past couple of weeks that a few things in the podcast are slightly different, mostly small, structural changes. I think that since I, like most of you, am stuck at home, I have the opportunity and the time to play around with some of that, to see what I like and what I don't like. Nothing set in stone, but over the next few weeks, keep an open mind, and if there's anything that you despise, feel free to let me know. On that note, I hope that all of you and your friends and family are safe and well during this trying time. With luck, we'll get through this together.